Hi, my name is Chiara Viale and you're listening to the Punks and Bobs podcast. I would like to invite you to check out my feature film, The New Music, available on video on demand, to buy your rent in Ireland on Apple TV and Sky Store, as well as in the UK on Apple TV, Amazon, Sky Store in Chile. Made in association with Young Parkinson's Ireland, the new music is the story of a classical pianist diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease and his friendship with a punk band in Dublin. The film's soundtrack features amazing music from punk bands all over the world, including Billy Liar, Bangers and Antilectual. You can read all about the film on thenewmusic.ie and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You're about to listen to the film trailer now. I hope you enjoy it. For the last time, what do you want me to tell you? Everything. Everything. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four! I must be Sit down, you write your songs and speak to people, you know? We're not perfect, right? You're not perfect. Life isn't perfect. Nothing perfect. Isn't that what music's all about? I won't waste any more of my time on my own feet. I'm coming home. Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I hope you're all doing well. So over the three years I've been doing this podcast, from time to time, I get the opportunity to speak to people who just kind of blow me away. And after speaking to them, you feel inspired and hopeful and you realize that this world isn't a complete piece of shit. Well, this episode is one of those people who I speak to. So for this week, I'm not going to waffle on. Let's just jump straight into episode 71 of Punks in Pubs. So episode 71 sees me sit in front of my laptop and speak to Kelly Knoll, sister of the late, great Bradley Knoll, singer of the legendary 90s reggae ska punk at Sublime. Kelly is now spearheading the Knoll Family Foundation that provides addiction recovery services to the music community. The Knoll Family Foundation is currently trying to raise funds to open up a service called Bradley's House. It will be a six-bed recovery facility that will provide treatment for people in the music industry with opioid addiction, regardless of their financial situation. To do this, they have partnered up with Law Records and have released The House That Bradley Built, a compilation album of sublime covers. The album features artists such as The Skints, Descendants, Pennywise, Authority Zero, Bad Cop, Bad Cop, Bucko Nine, Safe Farris, Mad Caddies, just to name a few. So you can go and pick up that compilation album by looking at the episode description of this podcast. There is a link. So go pick up an album and support this foundation. Also, for the next two weeks, all profits from the sales of Punks in Pubs t-shirts will go to support the Knoll Family Foundation. So if you've been holding off on getting a t-shirt, now 
is the time to go pick one up. So what do me and Kelly talk about? Well, obviously the foundation and the compilation album, but Kelly very kindly opens up about life growing up with Bradley and tells some amazing stories about his love for music and the bands that inspired him as well. But she also talks about the anger at him for not being able to tell those stories himself after passing away in 1996 from a heroin overdose. We speak openly about addiction, and this might be difficult for some people to listen to, so if you are seeking help, there are links and numbers in the episode description of this podcast and also on our social media sites at Punks in Pubs. So if you are seeking help, go and find them there. I honestly believe this is one of the best episodes I've ever done for this podcast, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So this is episode 71 with myself and Kelly Knoll. I don't practice The, um, let's start again. Best thing about audio, you can fuck up and then you can just start right? again. Right? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so staring down my laptop, as is the way nowadays, I am speaking to uh, Kelly Noland. Some of you might not know who she is, but I'm sure you know her uh, her brother, who who is who was Bradley, the lead singer of Sublime. I'm speaking to Kelly because we're going to talk about Bradley House, a, a project that has been created by uh, Kelly and uh, her family. But also we're going to touch on Sublime a little bit as well. But Kelly, um, first off, how are you? I think people generally mean it now when they actually ask that question. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thank you for asking. And thank you for having me on your show. I'm really so no 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 thank you i mean come on let's not but let's not be that polite i mean it's, it's, it's a punk <laughs> no, <I> podcast really, <laughs> it's like i really there's, am there's I, podcasts at, and then there's I punk podcasts your, i looked at some of your previous guests and i feel very intimidated to actually be here but <laughs> you've talked with stacy d who is just yes. adorable love her so much and of course frank turner who is one of my absolute all-time favorite artists so i feel really really honored to be on the same podcast as frank turner that's amazing i mean if you've if you've listened to the interview then you might have different um different opinions <laughs> I, I, I did listen to the interview and i loved it i, I i've been a huge fan of frank's music for years and actually it's my dream to get him to do something for the foundation but we'll see one of these days maybe well i mean this this will get cut, but I can happily send you his email address if you, if you want it, and you can reach out. <laughs> Don't tease, Liam. Don't I, I will. Tease. I will. I mean, that's that's what the whole community is about: is helping other people. So, uh, right well, I'll right definitely on. do that. We, like I said, we're going to talk about uh, Bradley House and, and Sublime a little yes. bit, but I'm kind of interested in a little understanding of your musical interests and talents because being the youngest sister. 
of Bradley, did he ever try and like push his own musical love onto you? Or was it something that he kind of rebelled against and went completely down a different opposite genre of music? You know, we always both had our own musical interests and they were really varied. Uh, we grew up in a very musical family. So, you know, playing music and listening to music and enjoying music was just a really normal thing for us. And we never, either one of us really ever felt constrained by any particular genre. So it wasn't it didn't seem strange to me to, you know, one minute be listening to John Denver and the next minute be listening to the specials. You know, I mean, it was it was everything in between. So Brad definitely had his own musical interests. He definitely dug farther into reggae and punk than I ever did. But I had my own interests as well. And sometimes they overlapped. So we really never never butted heads. I think it was more just introducing each other. I listened, you know, like in the in the late 80s, I listened to a lot of, of rap music and, and I feel sort of introduced him to some of that. He used to give me shit about it for years. And then next thing I know, he's singing about KRS-One. So <laughs> I like to think I, I had a little influence on him. I was two and a half years younger. So he, you know, he definitely had a more, I would say, more developed musical sense uh, in the early years. But we def we shared a love for the specials for sure. And, and there was a lot of overlap. So I think it was more complimentary than anything else. So let's say like on a family car ride, who had control of the radio or, or the, uh, or the um, eight track? I, I, I don't want to show age. Um, <laughs> All right, I'm not that old. We did listen to eight tracks when I was a kid. Dad had a really impressive eight track collection. You know, it was I would say it was mostly him if he was driving. It was me if I was driving. You know, whoever's driving gets control of the radio. The, the rules, yeah. The, 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 the For actual, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've spoken about your family. And, and um, so from what I've read, your dad played the, was quite a keen guitarist and your mum was a piano teacher. Is that correct? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, dad still plays the guitar and has a wonderful voice. When we were kids, I thought he was the greatest. I didn't understand why he didn't have records. That's how old I am, records. I didn't know why. He didn't have records because I thought he just had the most amazing voice. And he would he would sing and play the guitar at, at family parties and all kinds of things, which all our family did. You know, grandpa sang, played guitar and banjo, harmonica. My uncle played the guitar. There was all kinds of music. Anybody who had anything would play it. And then everybody else would sing and dance and hula and all that. And and my mom is an incredibly accomplished piano player and flautist. She is incredible on the flute. She got a, a full ride scholarship to the Sorbonne and turned it down because she wanted to stick around for my dad in college. So um, yeah, very musical family. And I feel really fortunate to have grown up that way. I thought that was normal. Did, but, so did you pick up an instrument yourself or have you? Yeah. I mean, over the years, I've played the piano and the flute and sang and all kinds of stuff. Never, um, I don't enjoy performing for other people. I mean, I have, but but it was never really something I pursued. But music has always been a huge part of my life. And, and I've passed that on to my kids as well. I have two boys, 22 and 17, and they're big music fans. And, and I love hearing stuff that they've discovered that they turn me on to now. You know, for so many years, my musical tastes influenced theirs. And now it's really exciting to see them with their own styles and tastes and, and introducing me to stuff too. But yeah, music's always been a big part of my family. Just very quickly, uh, Kelly, you're going about to hear Archer. If he, um, I just think I think you just heard him out. Archer, can you see the camera? I'll, yes. I'll quickly pick him up. One second. Here you go. Here he is. <gasps> oh my goodness! Oh, he's beautiful. Oh, look at him. He's a big old look. Watch. He's, he's huge. He's, he's, <gasps> he's huge. How much does he weigh? Uh, he's about six kilos. 
I might keep this in the podcast. <laughs> so, when, when, so like when he does howl, it feels like the whole weight of him is coming out of his mouth. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite demonic. Um, we'll we'll see how long awesome. we see it. <laughs> he's demonic. He's beautiful though. So beautiful. Uh, he, he's very beautiful, but he is a monster. And he in the winter, I think he's been quite frustrated because he's got nothing to hunt. Um, oh, he, he's, he's quite happy to bring in gifts and uh, a very quick story that on my birthday um, he he <laughs> woke up and he looked at me ran outside and then in about 20 minutes after he brought in a live pigeon um, <gasps> that he oh my like in my head I thought it was like he brought it to me as a gift oh and, he absolutely did and then I tried to get it off him he went under the bed with the pigeon and then we just heard <laughs> a crack and um, Archer came out, and then there's just this pigeon, uh, half dead. Um, oh. So I had to pick up the pigeon, and obviously oh. I wanted to be humane, so I had to. I didn't want to leave it suffering, right, so right. I, I had to go outside and murder this pigeon <laughs> oh. <laughs> on my birthday. Archer, don't chew that, you dick. Um, oh so that. So yeah. So so my birthday was. Uh, I got to murder a a half mangled pigeon. <laughs> Uh, bird murder yeah exactly wow. archer's a bit of a badass he, he's a he's a he's a complete psychotic um kidding <laughs> so yeah anyway <laughs> let's get back to the interview um sure. <laughs> i mean i don't know how we're gonna top archer uh right? murdering birds but <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a go <laughs> where was it going i, I completely uh, forgot what trail i was going on. Uh, uh, play music we that were was talking it. so music, yeah, yeah music so <laughs> I'm just going to rename this punks talk about cats um <laughs> well actually talking of like a famous obviously um animal oh, brad yeah. had had obviously the dalmatian um yeah when did he get that like was that something that he got himself to to try and kind of calm himself and relax him kind of like anxiety you've got a dog there who's like loving and kind of it takes attention so it takes your mind away from other things yeah good question we we had animals all growing up we are in fact the first dog that i remember we got when i was about nine months old it was a big old english sheepdog and brad who at the time would have been i don't know what three two or three named her uh little miss muffet which apparently was the the nursery rhyme of the day so we called her muffy and we had muffy until i was 13 but we also had we so after that we had a whole string of dogs we also had cats and fish and rabbits and mice and rats and snakes (laughs) lots of animals so that was that was pretty common around our household so it didn't surprise me when he got louie um he he knew somebody or or ran into some guy who had this Dalmatian, but he worked full time out of the house. So he would leave Louie locked in the bathroom all day. And Brad was just horrified by that. He thought that was just awful and cruel. And, mm. and so he offered to buy Louie from him and, and he did. So that's how he ended up with him. I don't, I don't think it was any big, you know, overarching plan of having somebody for company although brad always did like having somebody or something around so that didn't surprise me but he was so connected with that dog and he took him everywhere everywhere that he possibly could it wasn't unusual when when sublime was playing the early shows in you know 
small clubs with sticky floors, I would show up and Louis would be waiting out front, just sitting by the front door, waiting patiently for Brad to finish the set. And, you know, and then places that would allow him in, of course, Brad would take him in and he'd be running around on stage and uh, biting people. He <laughs> was not friendly. He was not a nice dog. <laughs> no, okay. he, no, yeah, but he loved Brad with all his heart and Brad loved him. And uh, one time, he ran away or got lost. And I think it was a week or so before we found him. And Brad was just devastated. I mean, just devastated. And then of course, when Brad died, Louis was, was extremely distraught. So they had a, a beautiful connection. And I think it's great that he's, he's so well-remembered as part of Sublime and, and part of Brad's life and stuff. Cause he really was a very important figure in Brad's life. Obviously he's come kind of like the mascot of the band. So um... yeah, that's right. Um, so just going back to, to music then, did you ever, like, did you ever, like, jam with your brother, like, just kind of in, in in your bedrooms when you were younger? Was that something that you kind of remember as, like, something that you enjoyed together? You say, like, you, you don't like performing, but was it you don't like performing in front of a public or were you quite happy performing with, like, family members? Well, we would, you know, it was super normal just to sit around and, you know, one of us would play the piano or somebody would sing or he'd be sitting there strumming his guitar and we'd sing on the couch. I mean, it was, it was never anything very formal, but just, just very natural. And then I remember when he got his first drum machine, I think it was probably around 1980, 81. And he thought that was the greatest thing. And he would sit around and, and make these beats constantly. And he'd be like, listen to this, listen to this. And, and then he'd layer something on top of it. And um, yeah, that, that drum machine, he was, he was really stoked about, but yeah, that was, that was just kind of, normal and natural. I, I keep saying that, but it wasn't until I got into high school that I realized that everybody didn't grow up the same way with music. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it took a while before I fully appreciated how special that was. And certainly now I, I am so grateful for that foundation of music because it's such a big part of my life, but it was just really a, a normal everyday part of life. And, and honestly, that's one of the things that I miss so much is just having someone sitting on the couch, strumming guitar in the background, you know, as I go about my daily routine, that was really common and and I miss that a lot for sure. So you spoke about like musical talent in the house. Um, like Sublime albums were never just 10 or 12 tracks. They're around about 20 songs on an album. Do you remember <laughs> him being quite a prolific writer? Yes, uh, I do. He he loved to play the songs that he'd just written for me. Um, I remember when he wrote Date Rape, it was years before they recorded it. And he was so proud of that song. I know years later, it became the song that that the radio stations picked up. And so he got tired of hearing it and tired of playing it. But when he first wrote it, he was really proud of it. And I remember him calling me into his room and he had this futon mattress on the floor and we sat on the futon mattress and, and he played the song. And honestly, I was horrified. I'm like, you can't <laughs> say those things on a song. Like that's, that's not okay. It was, you know, it just, it was shocking to me being younger than him, that he was talking about those things, but he was really proud of it. And the, the one thing that stands out to me is him calling it message music. He's like, it's message music, Kelly. And he really felt like he was contributing to the, you know, societal conversation about date rape and those things. And and he was really proud of that. So I, I enjoyed hearing the songs as he created them and played them and, you know, just hearing his excitement about them. That was really initially my, my involvement with his musical career was just supporting him and being excited for him because, you know, it's my brother and he's got a band and he's playing music. And 
so I would go to the shows just to hear him and, and to smile and grin and feel super proud of him. Let me tell you about a girl I know Had a drink about an hour ago Sitting in the corner by herself In a bar in downtown hell She heard a noise and she looked through the door Inside a man she never seen before Light skin, light blue eyes A double chin and a plastic smile Well, her heart raced as he walked in the door And took an empty seat next to her at the bar My brand new car is parked right outside Had you like to go for the ride? And she said, wait a minute, I have to think He said, that's fine, may I please buy you a drink? One drink turned into three or four And then nothing got him to his car And they drove away someplace real far Now, babe, the time has come How'd you like to have a little fun? And she said, if we could only please me on our way I would not run That's when things got out of control She didn't want to, he had his way She said, let's go, he said, no way Come on, babe, it's your lucky day Shut your mouth, we're gonna do it my way Come on, baby, don't be afraid If it wasn't for day rape, I'd never get laid Was music always gonna be the, the path he was going down? Because I believe he went to university or college, as you guys call it And started studying finance um, right. Was it kind of he was just doing that to please the family or was it like he really did think music is just a hobby, but finance is kind of going to be the thing that's going to pay the bills? Mm, uh, no, I think he always thought that music was was what he was going to do. I don't think he was very concerned about paying the bills. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that thought ever crossed his mind. He had he had one job growing up in high school for about three weeks. He worked at a fast food restaurant and I remember him complaining every day about the polyester uniforms. And, <laughs> um, and then that was it. Then he never had a traditional job after that. He, he went to college because university, because that was expected of us from our family. That was just sort of what we were expected to do. And so he did. And the first couple of years, he didn't know what he was going to study and then after that, he decided to declare finance as a major. My dad was a general contractor and had his own business. So I think at one point he had hopes that Brad would take over the business, but obviously that never happened. Although he did have business cards made up, which is pretty funny. No construction <laughs> business cards with Brad's name on it. But um, yeah, I, he never really had an interest in any of those things. I think he just, he didn't know what he wanted to do and he was playing music because that's what he wanted. And and he hoped that it would, it would eventually become something that he could pursue full time, but he was happy to live very modestly and you know, he lived in, in some very questionable places, but yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't too concerned. He wasn't worried about having a nice place and nice things. He just wanted to be able to play music and because he had to, you know, he, he had this, this need to just, to just play music and to get it out. And that was the most important thing to him and the rest of it didn't really matter. Because we are a punk podcast, I kind of, I am kind of interested to, to get an understanding whereabouts. Brad kind of went from, because he was in a punk band when he was really young, correct? He was. In fact, um, two bands before Sublime, I think, he was in a band with with Eric Wilson, the bass player from Sublime. It was called Hogan's Heroes. That was when we were both in high school. And 
he loved that band. In fact, I remember I had them play a party. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this podcast, but she was out of town. And so I had a party and Brad said, Oh, I'll bring my band and we'll play. And, um, you know, at the time it was mid eighties and it was me and all my preppy friends. And then Brad brings his, his punk friends and his, his punk band. And they were smashing wine glasses in the wet bar. And it was, it was a disaster, but it was very, very memorable. (laughs) It's a great night. Woke up in the morning. There were strange people asleep on the family room couch, and uh, but yeah, it was it was it was fun. And so that was that was his first real band. And then after that, he had another band called Sloppy Seconds. And then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then and then Sublime with Bud and Eric. So was that the closest you came to like a punk rock lifestyle? Was that party? And we were like, Nah, I'm all right. I, I don't it really was. Yeah, that was the closest I came at that point. He did. He introduced me to the Dead Kennedys. I remember him playing uh, Holiday in Cambodia. And again, I was horrified. I, I you know, I, I listened to a wide variety of music back then, but never really uh, got too much into into punk music. Um, I definitely have later on. But yeah, at the time, you know, I was young and innocent and and shocked by the things that he was listening to, which was good. I needed to be shocked a little bit. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't really want to touch on too much about like the rise of Sublime, because I think it's been spoken about quite a bit because like the band were known for hustling and i think that's something that Mm. um doesn't get spoken about enough like how how diy they were and how much they were like well we don't really have the money so we're just going to put the albums out ourselves and we'll just kind of hustle for it i I read a great story about them breaking into schools and um recording on equipment because i think the janitor or something like let them in (laughs) actually it was uh, miguel michael happelt who who really was instrumental in getting their early albums recorded he was a music major at uh i think it was Cal State Dominguez Hills or something. And he would get them into the studio and they would record all night and then, you know, leave in the morning. And, um, but yeah, they were very DIY and they definitely hustled. They would sell, you know, CDs or, or cassette tapes out of the back of their trunk and they, probably did some illicit things that I won't mention to raise money to be able to to make their albums. But yeah, they were just, you know, do whatever it takes. They would borrow money from family and, you know, just anything to, to get the albums out. And they went on the road really early. And so they they made a name for themselves on the West Coast of, of the U.S. Mm. pretty early just by, you know, driving up and down the coast and playing anywhere that anybody would let him play. As an outsider looking in, though, were you like, he's onto something. Like, this could literally be a career for him. No. No, <laughs> um, It wasn't until much later that I ever thought that. In fact, it was, I think the first time that really hit me was, I want to say it was 1995, I think, when they played the K-Rock Weenie Roast. And I went to that show and I always liked to to watch the shows from out with the audience. So, mm. you know, you feel the energy that, that everybody's giving off. And um, so I would, I would watch the shows from out in the audience and then go see them afterwards backstage. And so when they played the weenie roast, that was the first time I heard people singing along with his lyrics. And there were thousands of people singing along to date rape. Cause that was the song that K-Rock was playing at the time. And, and I remember looking around like, how do these people know the words to his song? Like, I was so tripped out. And and I think that was the first time when it really sort of dawned on me, not that he was ever going to, you know, make a huge mark on, on the music industry, but just that, wow, like, 
people really know him outside of Long Beach and outside of, you know, our, our circles and outside of the backyard parties. And that was, that was a real eye-opening time for me, just seeing, seeing that where it sort of mentally for me went from my brother and his little band to, wow, they're really doing something. But I never, honestly, uh, never had an inkling that, that Sublime would have the impact on the music industry that they have had. So how difficult was it for you then, like watching your brother on stage performing, everyone's singing the words, but you know, in the background, he's battling these demons that went on to unfortunately kill him. What I'm trying to get at, was there ever a point where about you thought he needs to stop doing this because the world that he's surrounded himself with, the people he's with, it's going to kill him? Yeah, we, you know, we thought that for a while. I remember as a family talking about the fact that he was really struggling with heroin and that things had gotten worse. And there were a lot of years where we really expected to get that call at any moment, you know, that he had overdosed. When it came, it was at a time when we didn't actually expect it. And that was the most difficult part. But he had been, you know, struggling with with different um, addictions over the years. And it just kind of get progressing, you know, for him, it was just the constant searching for something to, to escape in or to what he felt boost his creativity or, you know, all these different things. And which, you know, honestly are, are all just justifications. We always find ways to justify the things that we want to do. And, um, but he, you know, he struggled with, with his heroin addiction for four years before it took his life. And so there were a lot of times when we were afraid that it was going to going to take his life. And, and yeah, that was a big part of it, knowing that, you know, this lifestyle that he had chosen made it very difficult for him to stay clean. And, you know, he tried many times to get clean and um, went to several different rehabs and even tried detoxing at home. And it was, it was hard. It was really hard to see him going through that. Looking back on, on pictures of him now, whenever he looks very skinny and gaunt, he's, that's when he was very strung out. And then um, people refer to pictures of fat Brad where he's, you know, filled out a bit more and he's healthier. And to me, that was, that was the Brad that was not strung out. And that, that was, that was the real Brad. So it's very difficult to see the pictures of him where he's really strung out because of course that brings back a flood of memories of, of how things were with him. You know, he would he would steal whatever he could get his hands on to, you know, take down to the pawn shop and sell for drugs. And he would pawn his guitar knowing that their manager would have to go and and buy it back before the next show. And um, it was heartbreaking. Those were some really, really difficult years. But it was also during that time that he had his son, Jacob, and, you know, he got married a week before he died. And so there were there were good times and bad. And it was just this constant up and down of never knowing what to expect and realizing that because he was in this industry, that it was very difficult for him to escape the, the allure of drugs or, you know, just people offering things to him at every show. That part was very difficult. I don't, I don't know that there was really anything that we felt that we could do uh, other than trying to help him get into rehab and encouraging him to stay clean and that kind of thing. But but I do remember feeling very helpless because of his involvement in the music industry and knowing how hard that was to stay clean. We kind of touched on it a little bit before we started recording, but my brother is a heroin addict and um, yeah. he also um, went down the path of dealing as well um, oh. and it played a huge part in in my life and, and my, my mine and my brother's relationship unfortunately is deteriorated sure. um and we tried to help him numerous times and it's kind of interesting you said that he tried to detox at home and that's something mm. that my brother 
try to do and um to the point whereabouts i don't know if you if you ever got this extreme but my mum tried to lock him in his room to stop the wow. addiction and we lived in a, yeah. a three-storied house and he was on the third story and he jumped oh. out the window to go <gasps> and get his fix like I, he messed wow. up his ankle but he was so uh addicted uh, yeah taken over yeah. Um, with, with, with his addiction to heroin and like he said he, he robbed from my mum he robbed from me and we got to a point Whereabouts, like you said, we felt helpless and we couldn't help him right. because he wasn't ready to be helped himself. He he he, he right. didn't he didn't want to not be continue to be a drug addict. What point for you guys then? Like, did you continue to um, be by his side? Because I found it difficult that I gave him several opportunities to try and stop being an addict which obviously sounds ridiculous because he's an addict like it's it's a hard thing to give up it's not like he doesn't want to he just physically can't i got to a point where i was like i'm done i can't i can't like anymore like you've taken literally everything that i had and but you continue to want more and i haven't got any more to give you now um Mm. and i don't think i'm helping you either was there ever a point for yourself whereabouts the relationship got so bad that you were like i can't like i want to but i really can't there there were and you know i think a lot of people anybody who's never had to deal with someone who struggles with addiction, it's very difficult to understand that it's not a choice. Mm. And, and as I, obviously, you know, when, when someone is in the throes of addiction, it's not them. They're, they're taken over by it and it's no longer them and they become a very different person. And then you're really dealing with the, the addiction more so than the person. And I didn't understand that back then I was young and, um, had not had much exposure, even though we do have a you know, family history of, of alcoholism and addiction, but had never really experienced it on this level and didn't understand that. And, and so it was hard for me to understand why he couldn't just choose to not do it. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, but really at the time I thought that it was a choice. It was heartbreaking to me to see the things that he was doing and how he was hurting not only himself, but our family. And I do remember one particular time when I was at my dad's house and there, um, I was in the kitchen and the kitchen door is, is glass on the top half. And he came to the door and he was knocking and, and I had been told not to let him in because at this point he had, he had done so many things, you know, stealing things. And it, it, he was very strung out and it was obvious what he was attempting to do. But uh, I'll tell you, Liam, it broke my heart mm. to have to, to say no and not let him in. And I, I just remember his pleading eyes and, you know, uh, it was devastating to me, so devastating. And it's easier now to look back and, and realize that 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 wasn't him that I was talking to, that that was the addiction. But at the time it, it tore me up and it's it's so difficult the the impact that addiction has on families cuz it's not a solitary disease you know it it may affect that one person but it affects the whole family and friends and everybody around them and it puts everybody in a difficult situation you know i loved him and i would have done anything for my brother i really would have to have to say no and to turn him away when he so clearly was desperate um, that's something that'll haunt me forever. But you know, at some point, you have to you have to decide what is is enabling and what is tough love. And and there's no right or wrong, honestly. I mean, I don't think that there's no manual on it. There's no there's no one way. Every every situation is unique. But 
it's just, it's such a devastating disease and, and it, it hurts everybody around you. And so I, I do remember, you know, different times of having to sort of put my foot down, although there weren't many, because as I said, I didn't understand the disease at the time. And so I, I wanted to give him whatever he needed to be able to get better. You know, it wasn't something that he was capable of. family kind of prepared for the idea that he might die this this thing might take his life and it is something that was me and my mum spoke a lot about like even to the point where about we, we were talking about what to do with his funeral and and, and like things yeah. like that because we wanted to prepare um and, yeah. we, and we saw firsthand unfortunately uh, I, I've, I've seen his friends die by the side of him because they've choked oh. on their own vomit if you're literally sat next to someone you wake up and the person next to you is dead because of their addiction. Yeah. And even then, that doesn't stop you from continue no. to, to, to go and find drugs. Because that's what he did. He, he literally got up out, out the room and his way of dealing with it was just to go get high again. Like he, he sure. had to. I suppose what's quite tragic with your story was that he was he, he seemed to be doing well and then he seemed to relapse and then you got the phone call. Was it difficult thinking that he's on the right path and then all of a sudden the thing that you thought well we don't have to deal with that idea anymore of getting that dreaded phone call and then you got that dreaded phone call yeah it that really threw me for a loop we we knew that obviously that he was struggling and they had been in austin texas recording the self-titled album at a studio called Pedernalis that was owned by willie nelson and they had been there for a while and and we're recording and apparently he was pretty strung out. And after a while, it just was no longer productive. They couldn't, they couldn't get anything done. And so they sent Brad home and that was in March of 1996, I believe. And then he, he cleaned up for a while. He seemed like he was doing so much better. We, uh, the last show I saw was at the house of blues on sunset in Los Angeles. It's no longer there, but they had two sold out shows back to back and we went to one of them with my my family and we were all there with him and had such a great night and it was such a great show and things were going really well and he had um he and his uh girlfriend Troy had finally agreed to get married and so we put on this big wedding for them they wanted to get married in Vegas so we had this great wedding at the Tropicana and their you know real tropical uh chapel there we have a a lot of family over in Hawaii since the 1940s. So, so that, you know, was a big part of our life. So it was just, it was a great time. And we had this wonderful wedding and a bunch of family and friends were there and things seemed like they were on the upswing. You know, he was so happy about being married. He was so in love with Troy. He was so enamored with his baby son, Jacob, who was 11 months old. So we really, our guards were down, you know, we felt like things are good. We're finally, uh, on the right track. And, um, you know, he's got so much to live for, so to speak. But, um, and it wasn't that, that none of that was true. All of that was true. But, 
but the addiction was just so much stronger. And, and that's what I think is so hard to deal with. Just realizing the, the enormity of that, you know, that despite all these wonderful things, despite this new album and the, the new wife and his son and all these great things that were happening when he was offered a, you know, little suitcase or briefcase, whatever it was full of drugs at that last show. Um, and then he, he took them with him. Uh, as they went from from one show that they played and they were heading up to San Francisco to play another show that night. And it was in the early morning hours that he shot up for the last time. So getting that that call was a real, it was a real shock. And not that it's ever a good time to, to hear about losing a loved one, but but I just was not ready for it. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, for the four years prior, we as a family, we talked about, you know, this is a very serious thing. This is a very dangerous thing and we don't want to see him die. Let's do whatever we can get him in rehab, blah, blah, blah. But there was no talk of that for the previous couple of months. There was this sense of things were so much better. And so um, when the news came, in addition to the devastation of losing him was this, this disbelief that how could it happen now? It can't be real. This couldn't have just happened now because, we were okay. We were going to be okay. And so uh, that just sort of added to the tragedy of it all. And um, and I just felt like my whole world had been ripped out from underneath me. And, and honestly, things have never been the same since. That was a very, very traumatic thing. And, you know, people lose loved ones all the time. I certainly don't think that my situation is unique. I just, I feel like it allowed me to understand so much more than I ever did before that. And it really opened my eyes to, to a lot of things and, and sadly has allowed me to, to empathize with people who've gone through similar things. And, you know, then of course, watching my parents go through it and I, I have two sons myself, so I cannot even imagine the pain of losing a child. It just, it, it has been a devastating thing. And even now, you know, almost 25 years later, it's still incredibly painful. You just never, you never get over it. You just kind of learn how to live life in spite of it. Unlike any other grieving family, though, you had to be confronted with your brother's death on a national stage because less than a year later, like the self-titled album that he created before he died, like just went massive. I mean, it was on MTV, the radio, it was in the Billboard Top 20. I mean, how did you deal with that? Whereabouts, like... You, you maybe like a few months have passed and, it, and and it's still very raw, but then all of a sudden, like it's everywhere. Yeah, that I would have preferred not to have to deal with it that <laughs> yeah. way. I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the self-titled album came out two months after he died, and uh, it really, like you, you said, within the, the next year, it just took off in ways that that we could have never imagined. And uh, honestly, my way of dealing with it was to. Um, was to escape from all of it. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear the music. I didn't want to talk to any of his friends. I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody who was connected to my brother because it was, it was too hard for me. I just, I just couldn't, you know, and I was, I got married very young and I was so just kind of tried to throw myself into, into my life and ignore the fact that I had lost my brother because the it was too much. I just couldn't deal with it. I was 25 and it was, 
it was so devastating to me. Um, Brad and I had been very close when we were young. Our parents had, you know, been married multiple times and um, they're wonderful people. Uh, but, our, you know, our childhood was, was a bit tumultuous. And so for me, Brad was the one constant. And so when I lost him, um, I felt like I lost everything. So I didn't, I didn't know how to cope with that. I didn't know how to reconcile that. And so for honestly about 15 years, I, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And it wasn't until I got on Facebook and people started sending me messages and friend requests and I didn't know who they were. And, and so, you know, I would ignore the friend requests and, and I would see these messages and, and they'd be talking about Sublime and the impact it had on their lives and, and how meaningful it was to them. And I thought, why are they sending this to me? I wasn't in the band, you know, I, I didn't get it at first. And it really, it took about a year or two before I started to realize that I was this tangible connection to people who would never get a chance to meet him or know him. And, um, and that was really heavy. I mean, that was intense and I had to learn how to, um, talk about it. That took a while to, you know, just to, first of all, to be able to talk about it without bawling my eyes out, but you know, I'm a very private person. And so it was very difficult for me to, to be able to open up and share that, that grief and, um, because it, my natural response is just to, you know, clam up and, and keep that all inside and and sort of stuff it down. So, um, but I've been really privileged over the years to meet so many people who've experienced similar things and, and have had to go through similar tragedies and, um, and it's allowed me to, to, you know, give them comfort through my experiences, which, which is helpful for me. And so, in in sharing it with other people, I do think that it helps me to heal as well. And honestly, Liam, I don't know if I'll ever be healed from it. You know, I think it's it's just one of those things that that I'll always sort of carry with me. But um, sometimes I hate having to talk to people about it. Sometimes I hate having to confront it all the time. Um, I have a very good friend who's who's really sick right now, and I've been dealing with him. And so for the last two weeks, I haven't even been on social media at all, which is difficult because, you know, running the foundation, I need to be engaged and stuff, but it's just been too much. You know, the, the thought of losing another person that's close to me is very difficult. So, so there are still some ways that I have to protect myself. Um, there's only so much I can do. I wish I was capable of so much more, but, um, you know, we all do the best we can with what we've got. And, and I feel very fortunate that I can still hear his voice. You know, I know people who've lost loved ones that, that say after a while, it's hard for them to remember their voice or, you know, things like that. So I know in so many ways, I, I'm very grateful that he's still very present in my life, but at the same time, there's sometimes when I wish I could run away from it and I can't. Is there, you don't have to answer this, but is there any form of like resentment that he's left this to you? Like you're the one who's having to tell his story and he should be the one who should be telling his story. 100%. I'm happy to answer that question. I get very angry with him sometimes um, that, that I have to deal with all this on top of all the other shit that I have to deal with, with, you know, I, I went through a horrible divorce about seven years ago and, and, you know, I have these wonderful boys, but you know, it's, there've been some challenging times and uh, all these other things, you know, that life brings to us all. And then having to deal with all of his stuff on top of it. Yeah. I get very angry and resentful sometimes. And, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a good cry and a good fuck you, Brad makes me feel a little bit better, but, um, 
yeah, there are definitely those times. And so I sort of vacillate between, you know, feeling very fortunate and blessed and feeling very angry and bitter. Um, but, you know, I think that's normal. A, a good friend of mine told me one time, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And that meant so much to me because I've always been such a people pleaser and tried to do everything the right way. And, and that was very freeing for me just to realize that there is no right or wrong way. And it's okay to sometimes feel, you know, happy and, and wistful and other times feel very angry and, and, and that that's normal. You know, I think that that's, that's okay. And so I sort of have given myself a little bit of grace to, to feel those things when I need to feel them and just know that that's, that's just part of, of my story and his story and our journey. I kind of like the idea that you revenge play music like real big fish and just go, I'm listening to this shit now. <laughs> right. Fuck you. I'm just going to listen to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I do. I, I really do. And, but, you know, I think, I think he understands that. I think, you know, if he is somewhere watching all of this, I think he understands. And also, I think he's laughing. I think he's laughing really hard, knowing what a private person I am and that I have to, you know, do these, and not that I have to, but that I do these interviews and talk about it and do these things that are, are very difficult for me. And I I honestly believe that he's laughing at me. You know, this is his final fuck you to his little sister. Like, this is what you get for all those times that you told mom and dad when I was tormenting you or whatever. But um, yeah, I do kind of feel like this is him getting his ultimate revenge on me. Before we start talking about Bradley House, I have to ask you, was it difficult to see Eric and Bud start up Sublime again with Rome? Yeah, yeah, that was difficult. Just knowing that, that, you know, they were all three of them such a an integral part of the band. And I never felt like you could pull any one of them out and still have have the band. You know, they they all contributed so much to the identity of of their sound and their music. So it was it was difficult for me. I understand them wanting to do it. I definitely do. Uh so I don't I don't begrudge them that at all. But yeah, that was that was very difficult because I do feel like he was a big part of it. And it's, but you know, at the same time, there's so many other bands who have lost their lead singers and they go on to, to continue to make music. And I think that's so wonderful. So I know that it's just, it's just my own prejudices because he was my brother and because I have an emotional connection to it. But yeah, that was, that's been very difficult. I could stick it high I 
let's talk about Bradley's house. It's a, a six bed sober living, and I'm reading this obviously. It's a six bed sober living <laughs> and addiction recovery recovery facility that will provide treatment to those in the music industry who are struggling, regardless of financial situation. Am I right in saying that this project came about after Bradley's son Jacob? He, I mean, he's spoken quite publicly about his own battle with addiction. Was it a case of we like? we can't allow this to happen again. What can we do? Very much so. Yeah. In fact, uh, I have so much respect for my nephew. He is, he's 25 and he has dealt with things that are so heavy and that most people two or three times his age will never deal with. And he's done it in the public eye and he's done it with so much poise and so much grace. I really, I admire him so much. And I, I so wish that Brad could be here to see him. He would be amazed and overwhelmed and so incredibly proud of him. But yeah, you know, growing up, Jacob had had his own struggles with addiction. And several years ago, let's see, I guess it's four years ago now, four years ago, January of 2017, he went into rehab and and just really, you know, made a commitment to to a sober life and to recovery. And during that process, we were going to you know, the, the weekly family meetings and that kind of thing. And that was when the whole idea for the Knoll Family Foundation and Bradley's house came about. And it was an old friend of, of Brad's, Todd Zalkins, who suggested it. He said, and, and this had been suggested by a lot of people over the years, but had just never materialized. And he said to me, you know, what do you think about this? And kind of laid out the whole idea and I thought it was wonderful. I was crying. I'm an emotional person. I'm crying. Oh, that's such a great idea. I'll do anything. Just let me know what you need me to do. And somehow that turned into to me sort of spearheading the whole thing. But but I'm I, I'm really excited for the opportunity to be able to help other people avoid the same pain and tragedy that we've had to deal with. So for the last three and a half years, we've been working really hard to to get the name out. It's been a very grassroots effort and to raise money and so that we can open Bradley's house in honor of my brother. And as you said, it'll be a six bed treatment facility that will be a full 90 day program, starting with the one week medical detox in a medical facility and then 90 days in Bradley's house and really giving people in the music industry who are struggling financially, which, you know, is the majority of, of musicians. Yeah. It's, it's not for the Britney Spears of the world. You know, they can, <laughs> they can afford their Malibu treatment centers, whatever, but this is really intended for the up and coming musicians that are struggling to put gas in their car to get to the next gig and can't afford to get help and feel trapped by that. You know, they're pursuing their passion, they're pursuing their music, but um, but find themselves enslaved by addiction. And so the opportunity to be able to help those people is what really drives us and to be able to provide those services free of charge. So that's why we've had this huge fundraising push and, and you know, we always will, but, but initially to get the money to be able to open and operate for the first year. And it's been very eye-opening for me. When we started, we didn't really have a clear idea of how we were going to make it happen. It was just the sense that we need to do this, that it, it's almost our our obligation to use the connections and the the notoriety of the name that you know because of what Brad did that if we can make something good happen from that then somehow that would make losing him mean a little something you know so that's really what drives us in the sense of urgency that every day that that we don't have the house open is another day that we 
you know, could have potentially helped somebody or that someone else is lost. So we're really working hard to make that happen. And we've been very fortunate over the past year to have some help from a bunch of people in the music industry and Paul Milbury and Yasad Williams of Law Records and Pepper and creating this compilation album of 55 different artists doing Sublime covers. And it just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's really, that's been huge. It's really created a lot of buzz and, and, allowed a lot of people who had never heard of the foundation to discover it. And so I'm excited. The last, the last six months have just been mind blowing with the, you know, growing by leaps and bounds and, and gaining attention from people and, and raising more money. And so hopefully, you know, within the next year, we'll be able to, to open the house. Kind of spoke about um, that the house that Bradley built, which, which is the uh, compilation album, which I've, I've got mine here you got the vinyl that's yeah, awesome yeah yeah it keeps I, selling out well i mean you kind of joked about being old that that's me I, i'm like i'm <laughs> i'm one of those guys <laughs> who, who prefers the vinyl uh to, to to the spotify but i mean on the on the album you've got um people like skins descendants pennywise uh, authority zero bad cop bad cop which you just spoke about bucko nine say farris mad caddies just to name a few what was the process of of reaching out to these people? Was it a case in the because I know you've done like a deluxe edition now, essentially. Was it a case of you approach people in the early stages, and then did people start approaching you once the 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 the, the, um, the album started getting a bit more recognition and the name started going out there? What happened is in May of 2019, I was at a music festival in California called Cali Roots representing the foundation. We had a booth and we were selling merch and all that kind of stuff. And I was introduced to Paul Milbury, who's the general manager of law records. Um, Law records is owned by the guys from the band pepper and, and Paul is a huge Sublime fan. And so we were talking, we talked for about an hour and, and through the course of the conversation, he said, you know, we would love to do something to help the foundation. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff happening, busy summer, but maybe in the fall. And I thought, okay, great. You know, a lot of people say they love to help, but it never materializes. So maybe it will, maybe it won't, whatever. But, you know, he's a great guy and we had a great conversation. Well, then sure enough, that fall, I got an email from him and he said, I've got some ideas. Can we sit down and talk? So I think it was October of 2019, we sat down and he told me his idea for this album, The House That Bradley Built. And I thought, wow, you know, this is this is something that that we've sort of briefly discussed doing, but I certainly wouldn't know how to go about putting an album together. So, you know, if you can make that happen, absolutely, we'll do whatever we need to do. And so over the next couple months, it was Paul who reached out to all of these artists and with the help of Yasad Williams from Pepper, who is one of the owners of Law Records. And they just, they reached out to people and told them, you know, what we were doing and that it was for the foundation to raise money for Bradley's house. And, and they were completely overwhelmed with all of the people that wanted to do it. You know, it was, it was just sort of a, hey, let's, let's throw all these requests out there and see if maybe anybody bites, you know, and, um, we had over 50 artists that responded and said, yes, we'd love to be a part of it. So the first, the first release was the vinyl that you have there. And that it's, it's a two vinyl set um, that has, I think around 25 different tracks on it. And then just two weeks ago on January 15th, we released the deluxe edition, which is a three CD set that has all that has the tracks from 
the vinyl release in addition to another 30 plus tracks from different artists as well. So there's over 55 songs on there, all Sublime covers, all done by either musicians that were influenced by Sublime or some that were Sublime's influences, which is really amazing. Like um, Half Pint Mm. has a song called Lovin' and that's what uh, what I got was based on. So he did a a cover of, of his own song, Lovin' for us just different stuff like that, that, you know, songs that Sublime had covered by other bands, and then they did covers of them. So it was really neat to have this compilation of a mixture of of people influenced by Sublime and Sublime's influences. And it's really such a beautiful tribute to the band and to the music, and of course, to Brad and, and his legacy. So it's it's been really really overwhelming for me just to see all of the positive support so was there like fights over what song people wanted to do and what to cover because obviously <laughs> you had certain covers so i'm gonna guess like garden grove would be one that i think everyone would kind of battle to to try and uh, do a cover on i mean how did how did that work out was it like arm wrestling or, or uh, fumbles <laughs> what, what was the plan that's a great question we we actually initially we wanted to just have one cover of each song, you know, didn't want to have any duplicates. And so we were trying to, you know, like, okay, this band has requested this one. Okay, no, you can't do that one because so-and-so already wants to do it. And, you know, kind of trying to go back and forth. And after a while, there were just so many, so many artists and so many that finally we were just like, okay, fine, just do whatever you want. (laughs) So we do have a couple, you know, duplicates of certain songs. But interestingly enough, for the most part, everybody chose different songs and we just sort of left it up to them to, you know, choose whatever they felt like they wanted to do or what song they connected with. The Skins did an amazing cover of Get Ready. We've been huge, huge Skins fans in our household for, I don't know, five or six years, maybe more, no more than that, probably seven or eight. Anyway, my boys and I have gone to see them at least half a dozen times so to have them be on the album was we were geeking out about it we were so excited but yeah just this amazing you know compilation of all these different songs and all these different sounds and and some artists did their own interpretations and others just did straight interpret it just it's such a great combination and originally we were going to try to make it all acoustic but then some people you know turned in other variations it just it just kind of organically grew into this wonderful beautiful thing that that I'm not only so proud of but but seriously completely in awe that so many people wanted to be a part of it and wanted to pay tribute to Brad and honor Sublime and and to be able to do it where you know all the proceeds go to benefit the foundation so every every penny made from that album will go to to build Bradley's house and and so in a way it's it's all of these artists that are helping to build it and all of the the people that buy the album that are helping to build it. And to me, that's, that's how it should be. That's what Brad would want. That's, that just feels right. You know, that it's not one person saying, Hey, here's a million dollars to open the house. Not that I would turn that down. I would love that. But you know, um, the fact that it's happening in such a way that such a, a, a group effort feels very sublime to me. Kind of off topic though, talking about now with COVID, you kind of spoke about like the rush to, to get the house built so so you can facilitate and help people. Do you think there is a fear that people aren't talking enough about addiction during this time because everyone's kind of in a period of fear and loneliness and isolation and it's hard for most people. But I mean, if you've got an addiction, like I can't even imagine what now is like because you haven't got that social support. You don't have face to face contact with loved ones. Um, you don't have someone to reach out for, reach out to. So like the 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 mindset of going for something that makes you forget about the horrors that are happening now, it must be 
so much more tempting, especially if you're in recovery, than any other point in 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 history in, in recent history. You're absolutely right, 100%. In fact, before COVID hit, the opioid epidemic was a big part of the national conversation over here. I mean, it was it was very easy to talk about because it was everywhere. And then since COVID hit, of course, that's that's all anybody talks about is COVID. And so it's really taken a back seat. But sadly, overdose deaths have increased since COVID started. Because as you mentioned, the, the isolation and the wanting to escape and not having the, the connection, the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's really what allows people to stay in recovery is that connection. And, and so much of that was lost by having to distance from people and, and having to, to not congregate in groups and that kind of thing. And so it has sadly increased the overdose deaths and the effects of addiction and the fact that it's not being talked about, it just compounds it, I think. And so that is, it's it's very heartbreaking that at this time when it's needed the most, it's getting the least attention. But, you know, from our perspective, we're still doing everything we can to keep that conversation going, to keep that forefront in everyone's mind and to remind everybody that, you know, if, if you're struggling, then imagine how much more so someone who was already struggling going into this is feeling from it. And it's really changed how we've been spreading the message as well. You know, we thought that music festivals was going to be the big way that we could get the word out and, you know, generate donations and, and sell merch and, and raise awareness and all this kind of stuff. And that all stopped. That all stopped. I think our last show was last February. And so it's been almost a year since we've been able to do that. But you know, we had this album come out, which has far surpassed anything that we could have done. So it, there's always things that come up that you just can't imagine. You know, it's, I've, I've learned never to try to predict the future because <laughs> there's things that, that I, I could never dream up. So we're trying to look for the opportunities in that and look for the positive while at the same time realizing that so many people are suffering and that really helps to drive us to keep working harder. So if people want to help the foundation, what what can they do? Well, obviously the biggest thing we need is money because that's, you know, we, we have a budget of, of just under 750,000 US dollars to open and operate for the first year. So we want to have that money in the bank before we open so that we can then, you know, of course, spend the next year fundraising for the following year and that kind of thing. So that's our, our biggest need right now is, is raising money, but but also getting the word out because you never know. You never know who's going to want to make a, a tax deductible donation or, you know, or who has been impacted by addiction or from the loss of a loved one that, that wants to find a way to bring meaning to that by helping others. And so getting the word out is a big part of it. And um, in, we, we haven't paid any, you know, big PR firms or anything like that. We're trying to use every dollar that we get to go straight toward the house. So it really has been a word of mouth thing. And, a you know, somebody discovers it either from, from talking to someone else or from hearing the album or whatever, and it's spreading and, and we're so grateful for that. But that's really, those are the two biggest things. It's the, you know, the financial assistance. And then, you know, if you can't help financially, then spread the word or buy the album or, you know, buy some of the, the Bradley's House merch that we have on our website, which is the org. Just, you know, there's so much that people can do to help out and and just keep the conversation going. And that that does a lot. Let's kind of finish with this question then. What sublime song did you always enjoy watching Bradley perform? Oh, 
That's a tough one, but I do I do tend to like the sentimental favorites, the early ones. I have a I have a blank cassette tape that Brad had recorded their their first demo songs on. I can't remember exactly, but it's got Slow Ride and um fifty four forty six ball and chain and I think Romeo, I can't remember exactly, but those early songs are the ones that that I always love just because it reminds me of a, you know, a happier time in um in in the band's life and in Brad's life. And those to me, you know, as soon as they started coming out with tapes, that's all I would play in my car. And I was in college. So everyone knew when they got in my car, they would have to listen to this band that they'd never heard of before because that was my brother. And so that's what was playing. And um, so that, you know, the early songs are the ones that, that I feel much more connected to, obviously Uh, the whole 40 ounce to freedom album, I think is just brilliant start to finish. So a lot of those songs are are what I tend to gravitate towards, but I really love them all. The only one I have a hard time listening to is Pool Shark because he talks so openly mm. about his struggle with addiction and about ultimately losing the war. And so that one um, that one makes me cry every time. So I try not to listen to that. But but I really I really love all their music. Kelly, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really um, nice and um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it and I hope you did too. Thank you, Liam. It was really an honor for me and I appreciate you reaching out and for having me on the show. I was super intimidated to do it. I'm not going to lie, but you were so nice. You made it easy. Seriously, thank you. I'm going to stop recording now because otherwise I just keep <laughs> saying bye and thank you all the time. Do you believe I would take such a thing with me and give it to a policeman? I wouldn't do that. Mm, I wouldn't do that. Or come down and put the charge on me I wouldn't do that oh, I wouldn't do that I'm not a fool to hurt myself But I was innocent to what they've done to me They were wrong They were wrong I gave it to me one time Give it to me Give it to me three times Give it to me four times All 54, 46 Thank you so much to Kelly for taking the time to talk to me and for being so open and telling some of those amazing stories about Bradley. Please, if you can, go support the foundation. Do it. Go pick up a copy of The House That Bradley Built or just make up a straight-up donation. As I said at the start of the episode, for the next two weeks, all profits made from the T-shirts will go to the foundation as well. Information on how you can get a T-shirt and donations is in the episode description of this podcast. Thank you so much to Kara uh, for sponsoring this episode. I hope I've said your name right. I apologize if I haven't. Make sure you go check out her film, The New Music. Link on how you can go watch and stream that is in the episode description of this podcast. But from the top of my head, I think you can go and get it from um, from Apple Movies and I think Amazon as well. So go and support The New Music movie. And thank you again to Kara for sponsoring this episode. That's it for this week. I'll be back in two weeks' time with Chubby and the gang. Till then, stay well. Bye-bye. Give it to me three times. Give it to me four times. People listen up, don't stand too near. I've got something that you all should hear on the lies. All the lies they told to me for the little...